Hey, unorthodox listeners, we've tried to clean out our potty mouths for the new year to get a nice, a nice clean, lemony scented start. But just in case there are still obscenities escaping from our lips, why don't you wait to listen to this podcast until a time when the kinder, the children are out of the room and then turn it up to 11. Uh, Noah, the uh, HelloFresh is the first ad this week. Hi, Noah. Hi, Noah. Uh, no, what are you wearing? Is it plaid? Take it off. <laughs> We're going to leave obscene messages for Noah. <laughs> I'm sorry. He might be warm. Hello, Jews of 2017. This is Unorthodox, the weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet senior writer Liel Leibowitz. Season's greetings. Season's greetings. And Tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Mary 2017. Our Jew of the Week is comedian Lynn Harris, who will talk about her uh, new startup to empower the future of females in comedy. And our Gentile of the Week is science writer and neo-Buddhist and son of a Southern Baptist Robert Wright, who is always good fun. So it's a great show uh, today. The only man who could ever reach me. Was a son of a Southern son, Baptist son of a Southern man. Baptist preacher man. Oh yeah. Hey, good to be back in the studio. It's been three weeks. Wow. Has it been that long? It's been it feels like, like years. It feels like years. What's up? It feels Jews? like a year has passed. What is up, Jews? But I will. I will lead off. Hanukkah at our house this year was peaceful. There were no fights about <laughs> like my sister got bigger, nicer barrettes than I did. There was no like her jelly beans are more bursting with flavor than my jelly beans. There was actual. The gifts are barrettes and jelly beans. I like that. Well, so one night I'll tell you. So one night. It's really Little House of the Prairie. My, of one you. night my in-laws always give all four of them matching pajamas. There's pajama night for my in-laws. There's one night when my parents usually give them all something. It's like one set of grandparents, another set of grandparents, barrettes, books, something and something it's they all like, have to start with b yeah so Beans. it's sort of a serial thing like you know they get little things every night the biggest of them the most expensive are probably the pajamas we try to keep it minimal um my friend steve was saying how his parents and his in-laws each send eight presents for oh, each of his insane. two kids that's so us. every night that was us there's a grandma and grandpa present and oh, another yeah. grandpa and grandpa present so you actually are off the hook like, then as the parent. I guess, I right. Say? So he said they don't have to buy presents at all. On the other hand, they have 16 presents like before the – like before Bereshit. Like it's like before the beginning of the world, each set of grandparents has sent oh, yeah. presents. That's insane. I fucking own Playmobil now. Like you know Playmobil? <laughs> I own you that own shit. It. Yep. The whole thing. The whole thing. Wow. What was up with you guys? Well, I have some news. Yeah. Uh, on the, it's, it's, I guess it's on the Butnik front. My sister is pregnant. My oh, older sister, tough. Francesca, oh, tough, we're very Francesca. excited. I got clearance to share it on the air. Boy? It's a boy. Uh, a little baby Silverman, which is her last name. Um, and of course, her, we get to name the yes. child. So here's the thing. So her, so my sister and Cliff met in Israel. Her husband's name is Cliff? Yeah, Cliff Silverman. Is He's he the, under 50? Yeah, he is. There's He's the a, best. Uh, Cliff. Turns out they're both from Long Island, which shows you have to go to Israel <laughs> to meet shocker. a nice Jewish boy from Long Island. But So I think they wanted, I mean... My idea is that for them is that they do like an Israeli name to honor, you know, like <laughs> Israeli names. I mean, Israeli names. I re- I have to tell you, I, I I this will never not be funny to me. They're amazing. You have a duty, a doo <laughs> a Nimrod, and a moron, and these are all completely socially wait, accepted. Wait, 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 wait. moron, moron. Well, moron? it's moron, but moron, you know, <laughs> pronounced like a normal person. It's a moron. moron. Why are you here? <laughs> Moron, tell your brother Dudu and your <laughs> other brother Nimrod and these your are brother all, Dudu to now, come here. Nimrod's a real biblical name. Dudu and Dudi and Moron are, are <laughs> nicknames, the right? Dudi. What's the difference like between Dudu and Dudi? Like, what are they? Are they come? Do they come from different? Dudu names? is a little bit more hardcore. 
You don't fuck with a doo doo. Isn't there like a singer doo doo? Oh, there is. There are a lot of there are duties too. <laughs> Most countries failed with them. Did you give the language warning at the beginning of the show? <laughs> So wait, so I want people to like, I want people to write in with good names. Although even funnier, she could do the thing that most Israeli politicians do and come up with some like ridiculous nickname. Oh yeah, like, the nicknames like, are good. Like Bougie. Bougie. <laughs> could, could the baby be Bougie Silverman? I like that. Because that is a hardcore name. Wow. Bougie. This one is for our listeners. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Subject line. It's baby Silverman. Baby Silverman. Stephanie, have you seen any great movies lately? I saw Casablanca over the break uh, for a friend's birthday. How is it good? No, Mark, playing... do, you, do you like Casablanca? I've, I've never seen Casablanca. <laughs> the the backstory here on Orthodoxons is that right before we went on the air, I was saying I've never seen Casablanca because I don't watch black and white movies. Because I was so embarrassed that boring. I had never seen Casablanca. And then to, to my great relief, Mark actually doesn't watch the, the black and white yeah. canon. I'm confident enough in my own cultural elite status that I don't have to go back and so watch bo- just, movies like, that are boring. You just do Blu-ray. So the man who hates museums. <laughs> the man who shuns orchestras. I, no, no, I don't shun orchestras. Wait, wait, wait. I don't shun orchestras. I love. Beauty. I love orchestras. I love orchestras. I just don't like museums. Um, but seriously, like you never stop and wonder, like, huh, that Hitchcock guy. All the all the cool kids are talking about. Maybe he has. No, no. I, to well, Hitchcock's me. movies, most of them were in color. What I said is, I don't watch black and white movies because okay, they're boring. So, like, North by Northwest is brilliant. The Birds is brilliant. Hitchcock's brilliant. But I just there's something about old. Men talking like this. There's they something do about the old art movies. created before a you. relatively minor technological innovation. There's something about art pre 1945. That's just, just like it's it's your grandpa's art. So but that's such an insane statement. I don't even know where to begin. Yeah, with, see, that's the that. thing. Is, maybe, actually, maybe listeners. I'm actually. Like, I'm, I'm really. Guys, I need to get back to me watching Casablanca because I finally understand like every cultural reference of like that I've ever heard. It's from now, that movie. You didn't just watch it. You watched it with Mark Tracy. Yes. Right. What are the cultural reference? Oh. So play it again, Sam, is one. Of all the gin joints. Of all the gin joints and all the, yeah. This is like when you read the Bible and discover Costa all the Vista baby, which, you know, Humphrey Bogart's <laughs> sister, Ingrid Bergman. I'll, I'll be, be back. back when the Nazis. And also, like, had I known that it was, like, basically a Holocaust movie, I, I would have seen it much sooner. Let's do some news of the Jews. How about that? Aerosmith announced their upcoming Israel show by having guitarist Joe Perry play a bluesy version of Hava Nagila on Facebook video, which um, Liel called the ultimate Jew face move from the ultimate dickwad. Your word Jew face, by the way, I was talking to our former guest, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, and he was like, I need Liel's email because I have to tell him Jew face is exactly the coinage we need for that sort of sticky Jew face, Jew face stuff. I mean, the only thing that's like more offensive, culturally outdated, and just generally, you know, treacly is to play an actual Aerosmith song. (laughs) While we're talking Jews and music and Jew face, the street performer known as El Maestro, uh, who's Uh, in Mexico, is is entertaining tourists and locals in Mexico by singing traditional klezmer songs that he learned on the internet. Um, And he, what's what's funny about this is he's mad at. Jewish klezmerers for not getting it right. Isn't that how the story goes? Right, this was in, this culturally was the, so, so, yeah. appropriating. So it's basically, here's what the article This says. was in the Wall Street Journal. Musically, Mr. Perez is a strict traditionalist and disdains modern klezmer bands that fuse old world melodies with jazz, rock, and Latin music. So let's be clear. <laughs> a Mexican street performer who has never, I don't think he's left Mexico. He just is, is, he like feels very connected to klezmer. Doesn't like these bands of like young Jews in America basically being like <laughs> funky klezmer. And he's like, that's not legit. Can you believe these assholes? <laughs> but he's like my favorite. And, and he wears a hat, black hat and like he wears the black and white. He Does has he a wear- beard. Look, he says, 
he's he like is so well-meaning about this. I can see how it might bother or offend someone, but I don't have any malicious intent. I used to have clothes in lots of different colors, but as they got worn out, I just got rid of them. You know who else is a man in black? Every Orthodox moil in Israel. But a new Knesset inquiry finds that 40% of all Israeli brises are performed by unlicensed moils. I didn't read far enough in this article to discover what the licensure process I click, for a moil. It was deeply disturbing. <laughs> just, What's the test like? But there has to, I mean, you can't just start doing it. How do you know what you're doing? There has to be a way to learn. Which is actually a very fair question for moils the world over. I mean, nothing Israeli moil about this. Like, is there an apprenticeship? I think in Israel, they need to do the same thing that they did to us on like week three of basic training where they just like tie your eyes shut and then you have to take apart your M16 in like 35 seconds and put it back together again. I should be like, okay, Shlomo, listen, <laughs> here's a knife. Here's an eight day old. Here's a baby. <laughs> Well, you know who's going to write to us about this is Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob the Moyle, who is one of our frequent correspondents at Unorthodox he's say, at Tablet Yes, there Mag. is a lot com. of things I had to do and like a certification board because Moyles don't want people – like I don't think a Moyle would want anyone to think that they don't go through that rigorous training if they do. Well, what do they do? They show – do you get a little sticker for your driver's license that says a little, a little like scalpel on it? I mean how do you – I've never – I've been to a lot of brisses. I've never seen them flash – the the idea. I think it's like a word of mouth situation. Name's Moyle, Bob the Moyle. <laughs> it's a line from Casablanca. For our last bit of news of the Jews, um, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner have apparently chosen their shul in Greater Washington. Um, we got a letter from uh, our frequent correspondent, Tippy Pearl Turner, who said, as you know, I've been a fan of your podcast since day one. Uh, however, this week's podcast was less than stellar. She's talking about the podcast from three weeks ago. I was deeply upset by your diatribe against Jared and Ivanka's shul search and the implication that no shul would want them. Just to be clear, I did not vote for Trump, and I await his administration with more than a little trepidation. However, my feelings for Trump in no way would make me uncharitable toward his children. Doesn't the Torah teach us to welcome the strangers in our midst? In our shul, new families are welcomed with open arms, regardless of political beliefs or other apparent differences. I'm deeply disappointed that you would allow your vitriol to spill over and mar this basic Jewish premise. I'd hope any D.C. shul would welcome the Kushner-Trump family with open hearts and open minds. Sincerely, Tippy. She's such a good person. Come yeah. on, Sippy. We were like we're just being a little catty, messing around. Nah, 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 nah. nah. We we were not. But doing I, I, I think of the sort. I agree on the premise. I think it's a little awkward for the other schoolgoers because, like, they they represent a lot. They are like Trump surrogates, right? Like, it's it's a little awkward. I think it's I think it's unprecedented territory. But I'm glad they're not building their own private little shul room in the West Wing. Like, I'm glad they're out there in the community. I hope I hope they go. You you two are very soft. I've I've two things to say, <laughs> if I may. Can you do them in your accent? The first, uh, but what do you mean? The first is that they chose a Chabad show, which I think makes the Kushners the first people ever to go and ask Chabad people, "Excuse me, are you Jewish?" Are you? And the Chabad people are like, "No, no, we're fine. We're good. Don't don't worry." Uh, God bless Chabad. Seriously. Love the second Chabad. thing is this: Tippy, look, uh, you know, all of us here love and respect you very much, uh, but. And, and the, I do agree with your interpretation of the Torah, but at the same time, come on now. You know, um, my father drinks a fifth of vodka before Your father of blessed noon. memory. Uh, my father robbed 21 banks. But if my father came out there, so this is to say my father is no angel, but if my father came out there and said, you know what we should do? We should take everyone who believes in a certain religion and subject them to all kinds of extrajudicial measures. You know what I would do? I would say, fuck you, dad. 
uh, because it's the responsibility of every sane. It uh, takes far less to get you to say "fuck you, dad." Human being, <laughs> and so as they enter the community, I think the community should actually uh, should absolutely accept them as they should accept any Jew. You know, even say Peter Beinart. But as they accept wow, them, let them let them never forget uh, as they sit there in, in Mincha and Mariv. Uh, that they have made a very substantial moral decision and let everyone with whom they come in contact remind them casually and less so of that fact because they had a fucking responsibility. And especially Mr. Kushner is now a, an official envoy. These are not just hey, bystanders. Yeah. He's going to make peace this in the is Middle not, East. This yes. is not Tiffany It's not Chris Trump, Martin. Right? right. It's Jared, <laughs> it's Jared Kushner. Kushner. We can all unite in our hatred. And so you're, you, if, not, if you're down with that, if you're down with an administration that is cool with, you know, downplaying the uh, actual credibility of our espionage and intelligence facilities in order to support shady business interests, uh, okay, but, cool. But look, here's what's going to happen, right, is that Jared and Ivanka are going to go from, from time to time, and they're not going to talk politics there. They're just going to they're kind of rush to the front of the line to get the good sable at the Kiddush like everyone else. And and if they don't talk politics to anyone— I don't think anyone, they stay for Kiddush. You don't think they stay for Kiddush? They have I, four kids. Like, you know, you don't stay for they, Kiddush. Do, and do they bring the nanny with them to shul? I think for sure. I yeah. bring the, we bring the nanny with us to shul. Well, so, I think they stay for Kiddush. And By the way, your them. shul is on my Facebook feed every Friday night because they're live streaming. Well, it should be. They're live streaming Shabbat services. And Joe time. Perry's Havana Gila. Um, listen, we have to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter. This week, we are welcoming the law firm of Yaakov Garfield, Leah Steinberg, Neil Fadden, Eli Savitsky, Sharon Litwin, David Lightman, Margaret Preston, Claire Dubin, Dana Schwartz, Daniel Hogan, and Nicole Knepler. Of all of those, I'm most interested in Neil Fadden. Who do we think Neil Fadden is? Oh, I know who Neil Fadden is. Who's Neil Fadden, Leo? He's the former Neil McFadden. Uh, he had a bar <laughs> named, a saloon, I should say, named McFadden's on 2nd <laughs> Avenue. Until one day. I think I've been there. He looked across the street and, and he saw a lovely young stern uh, graduate uh, named Rivki, <laughs> uh, and they fell madly in love. And Rivki said, "Look, the one condition of of our conscious coupling has to be for you to drop your awful name and convert." And and so now he's Neil Fadden. Still owns the bar, though. <laughs> is it called Fadden's now? It's called Fadden's. <laughs> so and there's a lot of whitefish. And a slip of it's in whitefish. So he's a bar. He's a barkeep on Second Avenue. He's, he's an a, Irish barkeep on Second Avenue. Well, Irish Jewish. Irish Jewish yes. barkeep. See, I, I feel like I'm going to tell you what I think. Yeah. He is. Who's Neil Fadden? I think he was like. He wasn't in A-Pi, but he was like in ZBT, you ah, know, like he, yeah. he was, and he wasn't that active, but he like was rush chair. He rushed. He was, no, he was rush chair. He wasn't active in like the other stuff, right. but he was an important, like he was the face of the community. And we're talking like, I don't want to say Michigan, but I want to say a school like with a big, like, you know, Wisconsin. A, a social seat. Maryland? Was he at Maryland? I'm Wisconsin? just trying to think of where ZBT is. No. But I don't know. Rochester. Uh, I actually think you guys are probably right, but my initial theory- You think Leo's right? My, one of the two of you is right. My, they're both better than my theory. I initially thought Neil Fadden was clearly the son of a, uh, an English professor who always wanted to write the, the definitive Philip Roth biography, but could never get access to Roth or to Roth's papers. So to show as, as a token, his, his sort of last ditch attempt at getting access to Roth was to say, we're having a son- we're naming him Neil after Neil Klugman in Goodbye Columbus. And he sent Roth a letter with a little picture of little Neil. He said, this is my boy Neil after Neil Klugman. This is Can my I boy please... Neil Swede Lvov Alexander <laughs> Portnoy Fadden. Exactly. And it didn't work. Roth, of course, being reclusive and misanthropic, it didn't work. But but Neil was stuck with the name. Hello,
Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Upcoming live shows. Okay, listen up because this is tonight. I have something tonight, Thursday, January 12th. I will be at Long Story Long, which is a storytelling event at Under St. Mark's Theater, 94 St. Mark's Place at 7 p.m. It's this really, really fun uh, storytelling event where they only have three storytellers. So each of us gets a little a little breathing room. Long Story Long. I'll be telling a story about the time when I was 10 years old that a friend and I fell under the spell of a Ouija board. This is this is for realsies. Go to horsetrade.info or search for it on Facebook. Long Story Long under St. Mark's Theater, 94 St. Mark's Place, 7 p.m. tonight. Thursday. Come out and see me. I would I would absolutely be elated. And also my in-laws, the Fremers, are coming. So come meet my in-laws. Okay. Here's the biggie. We've been talking about the special secret special sauce show. It is January 25th in New York City. Unorthodox takes Gotham. Two weeks from now, January 25th, we will be at the Jewish Community Center of Manhattan. Uh, Our guest will be podcast legend Jonathan Goldstein, who is the host of CBC's Wiretap, and now he hosts the show Heavyweight on the Gimlet Network, Uh, one of the great all-time radio funny men legends. He's also on This American Life all the time. He will be our Jew of the Week. Our Gentile of the Week will be Ross Douthat. That's how you pronounce it. People always wonder. The New York Times op-ed columnist, token in-house conservative Ross Douthat. And then the Jubador will be fronting a three-piece band and more, so much more. To register, go to jccmanhattan.org slash calendar. That is jccmanhattan.org slash calendar. We also have info up on Tablet's Facebook page. If you're planning to come, email us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and maybe you'll get a little shout out uh, from the stage. So January 25th, JCC of Manhattan. And then, as you know, February 10th, we will be at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach, Florida. Uh, Shabbat Eve, we're part of their uh, their own egg that night. So um, get some sun, come on out, see us February 10th, Temple Israel, West Palm. If you'd like to book us for a live show, email Alyssa Goldstein at egoldstein at tabletmag.com and, uh, you know, make her an offer. Thanks. Our Jew of the week, I may call her the Jewess of the week. We, how do you feel about the word Jewess? As long as you call me. <laughs> That's the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> uh, our Jew of the week is comedian Lynn Harris. She's co-creator of the award-winning and cultishly followed Breakup Girl about the superhero who saves the world by saving your love life. Uh, she's a journalist, a retired stand-up comic. Are you fully retired? I'm mostly just tired. You're just just tired. <laughs> she's a storyteller. She's an author of many funny books, including Death by Chicklet. She's married to a rabbi, though that doesn't define her. She is founder of the new starting up startup Gold, uh, which is online at Gold Comedy for Girls, which is designed to give girls and women the tools to find their funny. Is that right? Yes. To okay. find their funny, give them places to share it with the world. You have a long history of doing things that meld your your entertainer side with social justice and, and activism. Why comedy? I mean, one could argue... Like, well, that's not that's not the way to change the world. 
You could argue that, but that's not funny. But then you'd be an asshole, money, right? right? <laughs> okay, I see. <laughs> I really think that comedy is power. And uh, we just want to give that power to more people. And if more people had that power and more different people and more diverse and assorted people um, had that power, we'd all be better off and we'd all maybe even the world would also be a little funnier. Okay, that I mean, that sounds good. But how? what do you mean comedy's power? Okay, so one example. Let's say you're a stand-up. And one of the big most the most important things about being a stand-up is really um, uncovering your authentic persona. And let's say you're a teenager. And let's say there is the thing that you're embarrassed about or, the, or that kids bully you about or that you think that you're afraid people will know about you or the reason that people aren't your friend. That thing is actually you. That thing is actually what makes you funny. So instead of changing yourself to be funny, you double down on yourself to be funny. And that is just the most powerful thing you can possibly do. So to me, thinking about being having been a teen once, there's nothing more terrifying than getting on a stage, getting in front of anyone and doing anything. So what what about that, like the stand up process really like liber- is liberating for young people? Well, it depends on your perspective and, and what terrifies you. So for example, when you're on stage talking, you're also not talking to people. Oh God, that individually. sounds amazing actually. So, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, that's what I tell people a lot is that, you know, oh, I want to do that, but I'm too shy. And I'm like, perfect. When you, don't change a thing. Get on stage and mumble. And that's your persona. And also then you don't have to talk to anybody. Um, and, and they're like, wait, what? That's and that's, you know, to go back to your question, that's really the at least the personal part of the power of comedy for sure. So at the risk of sounding like a complete intolerable hipster, are we about to fuck this whole comedy thing up? Because, you know, I have the sense that, say, like seven to ten years ago, there was a sort of like amazing kind of explosion of amazing comedy. And it was really doing incredible things. But now we're at this sort of like heightened awareness of it and and all these comedians take a much shorter time you know kind of gestating from promise to stardom uh, are we kind of jumping the shark for comedy no we, i think we're, we're good i think we're good i know what you're saying but I think is this we're grunge good. grunge rock circa 97 <laughs> is, is what i'm asking no i think we're good I, we? I have a i have a different concern mm-hmm. um which is um do we have is there a, a fear ought we be afraid that um the sensitivities, uh, the, the the current sensitivities about racial language, about identity politics, the sort of resurgence of identity politics where all of a sudden there are certain things that people in certain communities aren't allowed to say. Like, you know, you're white. You can't make that joke. You're a woman. You can't make that joke. You're cisgendered. You can't make that joke. Um, that's That could be lethal to comedy, can't it? Because a lot of comedy is – is having fun at other people's exp- – having your own expense but also sometimes other people's expenses and the, the, the gift that comedians give each other when they're in a room together is they understand we're all working the room and it's out of love. It's not out of hate. Like we're punching up, not punching down. But I feel like that's kind of threatened if – when comedy gets too balkanized into different – you know, into into different identity groups. No. Well, I think two things. I think one, actually, I think it's great because I think that now we ha- now comedians have less license to be lazy. You know, and honestly, I think the problem with jokes that kind of make fun of other people or whatever punch down, you can have a separate conversation about why they're inappropriate for a bunch of societal reasons, but they're also like the lowest difficulty level of writing, so they're probably the least funny. Um, so I think that if there's a challenge for comedians to be less lazy and I'm, and most comedians aren't like, uh, you know, I'm not saying I'm not, I'm just 
um, saying in the abstract, if, 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 there, if that's the challenge, I, then bring it on. Um, I also think that there's a bit of, as much as I'm sitting here saying, talking about how comedy is so important, and I've, obviously I believe it is, um, I think there's a little bit of a facile sort of a, a chestnut about how comedy changes people's minds. I'm not sure it does. I'm sure we, I think one of the reasons we laugh at comedy is that it reinforces what we were already thinking. We just didn't think of it that way. I think um, I think what we have now is the opportunity to work harder and we're going to have to because Trump is not funny. Trump uh, is not funny. He's not funny. Yeah. I mean, comedians are really just like, well, oh, I was going to ask Christ, about I was going to ask funny. about comedy. Oh, hold and, on. Be, be, mm-hmm. Before we do that. So. To get back to this question of boundaries, I assume this is something you grapple with yourself. Uh, where, where where does your boundary lay? For example, if, if you came up with like the world's greatest, funniest, most sparkling joke that happened to be a rape joke, is that oh, something you would question. tell on stage? Well, I mean, there's rape jokes and there's rape jokes, right? And the thing is, it's the, the I always say that. Yeah, I mean, actually, I I, I actually in court always say three it. times. <laughs> the thing, rape is the topic. When you're talking about a rape joke, rape is, the, rape is the topic, but it's important to discern who's the target. So if the target is the victim, not funny. If the target is the culture, if the target is the, you know, the ridiculous way we blame the victim for, you know, having been, uh, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time, wearing the wrong shoes. Actually, you can you can absolutely write a fantastic rape joke that punches up. Right. Reductress did a whole issue of that was w- solid 100 percent rape jokes but they were like rape culture jokes and it was side splitting it was really funny so i would just say i don't know what's the rape joke well but doesn't that kind of demand that we break down the joke writing process into these sternly observed analytical processes i mean aren't comedians jokes- do like really good comedians know the rules so well they don't think of them when they're following them but they also do like really good comedians i mean i know what you're, you're getting at you're getting at the idea but if you break down the joke and analyze it into its tiny granular parts it's not funny anymore which yeah but that's not but the process well, actually that's does work that way aren't fun to hang out with right because they're actually not that funny in person because <laughs> right. they're like they're you're, trying you're fits fine, on though. you yeah you're okay oh thanks. Like but, thanks but you're okay because you're a jewess and jews right. are funnier right well yeah i mean are we uh, yeah or is it just like it's a cabal and we own the industry well, I, I mean, I, this is my second idea. My first idea was to get more Jews into comedy, um, but <laughs> I just couldn't get any. And my pitch deck was just lame. You it couldn't just, get the startup were, capital? No. Yeah. Um, That's but, because the Jews control the banks. <laughs> I know, I just, what am I not getting here? Those Jews are um, not funny. <laughs> um, uh, are we funny? Yes. Do you really think, think Donald Trump's not funny? I mean, I don't mean as, as, as a comedian. I mean, as like a right. persona. Are you not a little bit amused by the fact that a third-rate reality TV celebrity now has his Ugh, stubby so little I fingers on the I mean, nukes? once in a blue moon, I've heard. I've heard uh, there are some jokes that like that happen to hit sort of the way that like broken clocks are right twice a day, but like I think at least I can report. And I, I can report that's not only my opinion, but every single late night writer and every single stand up I've talked to has been like, I got nothing. Um, and the, to me, the only place where you can make jokes is not about him and not making light of the situation that we're now in, but rather making, you know, t- making jokes about how we're traumatized by it, making jokes about our own experience of it. It's, it's exactly like um, September 11th jokes um, where I remember uh, Marta Raven, Jewess, very funny. She had my one of my favorite perfect tiny little 9-11 jokes right after 11 when we all freaked out. I was doing stand up then and we were like, what are we going to do? Um, and Marta had this great joke about how 
once we all kind of revived, you know, a couple of weeks later, she had this great joke about um, how she walks down the street and anyone, anytime she sees a brown person, she's so traumatized and feels so, feels so bad that anytime she sees a brown person on the street, she wants to say, I don't think you did it. <laughs> you know, and that's not a joke about the, the terrorists. The that's not jo- a joke about any, that's a joke about us. That's a joke about our cult. You know, so that's a perfectly, not only acceptable joke, it's a hilarious joke. So I think there are jokes today that one could make about all sorts of, like, the ripples of what's happening, but not the, not the what of what's happening. To me, the fact that Donald Trump can't take a joke is so significant. Is that, is that important? Like, Obama yeah. was always in on the joke, it seemed like. I think there's something. I mean, I would actually. Well, he could kind laugh of, at himself. I mean, yeah, it says so much about his character right, that right. he could laugh no, at himself. I would actually no. bat that question you, you, over to a psychologist. To be fair, Obama could take the joke because all the jokes were written by psychophants who spent eight years admiring no, him. In yeah, the jokes were softballs because they were like dad jeans because there wasn't much. Like right. there, he's not that funny. I mean, there wasn't much to. Well, there you you could have done a little bit better. Uh, yeah, you probably. know, in the uh, file under how we got to President Trump, maybe. Uh, just maybe. If Had there only been better jokes. Better with Had there only been better jokes, right? <laughs> you know, just saying. Right. Um, so if people are interested in, in gold, they could go to Gold Comedy for Girls. Yes, I have free workshops. Uh, free workshops. Teach how to do stand-up. Uh, come in in the morning. Uh, leave in the evening having performed stand-up for your parents and friends. Can you really teach that? Like, seriously, yeah. do, do you believe that? Like, oh, if, and I don't just if, believe it. It's a thing. If, if it's like, accountant... that's like saying, can you really teach calculus? Do you believe that? Like, well, but I actually do you believe really that not you really not vaccinate your children, Look, Lynn? <laughs> for example, I believe that you cannot teach writing. I think that you could get a really shitty writer to be a pretty mediocre writer. I don't think you could get a mediocre writer to be a, a good I don't imagine you're saying writer. you can teach someone to be a great comic. There's a certain talent li- What baseline. I can do is they, they come in, the teenage girls come in the morning at 10 with nothing. They, we, we give them tools, nothing skills, but their insecurities. nothing but game and their insecurities. We give them M&Ms and we give Ooh. them pizza and we give them um, basic, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, we give them just basic stuff, basic info about this is the structure of a joke. We apply that to stuff about their lives. Um, but, and by the end of the day, we've sort of molded it into about a minute and a half of stand-up, which they then perform for their friends and their family at the end of the day. Before we let you go, uh, tell us one thing about being a rabbi's wife. <laughs> Just one joke about That's being a rabbi's wife. I imagine this was a, a lot of your routine. Back I used in the day. To, no, actually, no, it no. wasn't. It wasn't. Um, but I did used to say that they were just so. When uh, he was a pulpit rabbi at the time that I got married, now he's the dean at HUC um, in New York, and uh, but he was at a pulpit when we got married, and I used to say that. Um, his, they were like, so do they like you? Do they like you? What do they think of you? And I used to say, listen, they were just so happy that he got married that I could have starred in a porn about Rosh Chodesh and they still would have loved me. <laughs> what would that porn be called? <laughs> First of the month. <laughs> now everything we say Listeners, is going to sound dirty. Write to unorthodoxatalentbag.com with the, Blue Tishrei. the title of the porn <laughs> about Rosh Chodesh in which Lynn Harris will be starring. Uh, Lynn Harris, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you. Send in the clowns, those daffy, laffy clowns. Send in those soulful and doleful schmoats by the bowlful clowns. Send in. Hey J Crew, it is time for some pod biz. 
Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. The mailbox, a lot of people thinking about Jewish identity in our mailbox. Our mailbox is like a sofa. It's like an an, anal, an analyst's couch on which you recline. It's an but analyst's it's, couch for us, too. I mean, the mailbox yeah. currently is a major source of comfort and joy for it's me. It's amazing. But also reflection. Yeah. It's really amazing. Okay. We'll start here. Dear Unorthodox, growing up going to Sunday school and Hebrew school, I always felt like an outcast and I struggled to make Jewish friends. I got to the point in college where I felt I had no real connection to my community. Paradoxically, though, when it came to a faith system and philosophy of looking at the world, strictly speaking, the Jewish religion made the most sense to me. So I continued grudgingly to practice Judaism. I married a practicing Southern Baptist, but I made sure that she understood I would continue practicing Judaism. We've been blessed with a healthy four-year-old girl, but I've always had this humongous fear that she would never be accepted in the community. Because of her decidedly unJewish mother. And here enters your newsletter. Seeing your most recent newsletter with a celebration of Carrie Fisher, who had a decidedly unJewish mother as well, has renewed my faith in the community of my people. In fact, happening upon your podcast and tablet magazine has had the same effect. Thank you so much for existing and doing what you do. I seldom express to anyone my feelings of my faith and community, let alone strangers, but I really felt like I needed to reply to this one. Sincerely, Daniel Hogan. Daniel Hogan, as we say in the yeshiva, bismillah, my friend. All right. Hi, my dear and definitely fun staff at Unorthodox. I grew up in a culturally Catholic but basically atheist home. For some reason, I always felt some connection to the Jewish people. When traveling, people would address me in Hebrew, mistaking me for an Israeli. My Russian grandfather's surname was Geller, so people assumed he was Jewish, and I always enjoyed Jewish culture. Well, some four years ago, after doing research, I came to the conclusion that my grandfather's family was indeed Jewish, but had decided to pass as Russian Orthodox to escape the pogroms. And it dawned on me that my mother, who had passed away by then, had probably passed on to me unconsciously a Jewish identity. Three years ago, I decided to be open about this and have happily incorporated Jewish rituals at home. My Gentile partner hasn't doubted or questioned my decision in the least. I can't be halakhically Jewish because it was my mom's father who was Jewish, not her mother. I can't convert to Judaism because I'm an atheist. The city where I live right now has a Jewish community so exclusive that it doesn't accept people like me as Jews. But if I were religious, I'd no doubt say I had a Jewish soul. So, unorthodox, can I say that I'm Jewish? Tad. Well, Tad. By the, by the powers vested in us. We hereby. You had me until Tad. 
So one thing I would say is if your grandfather was Jewish, according to the reform movement, God bless them, you are Jewish because paternal descent is fine. And so, you know, your mother was and you are and go with God. According to the Lords of Podcast. Yes. But more importantly, according to the the powers vested by the Panoply Network and Tablet Magazine. Hell yeah. Most Jews are sitting around wondering what, you know— if they should go to temple, do they love Judaism? Do they not love Judaism? They're tearing their hair out. They're they're rending their garments. They're gnashing their teeth. And you just love Judaism. God bless you, mate. Come to you. You are a Jew. Yep, you are a Jew. Welcome. Pretty much two questions on that test. Are you serious about this? And do you feel it in your heart? Uh, if the answer is yes, hey, is this the Moyle test? Well, yeah. that's also the Moyle Frickin test. Tad. All right. Uh, three more quick letters. Hi, just wanted to let you know that you have clandestine frummies listening to your show. I was LOLing when you guys were discussing our fashion choices. This was when we were talking about fashion of the of the about sweaters and Orthodox stripes. women. Yeah. Liel was wrong. Stripes aren't a thing anymore. That's uh, that's so 2014 or even hurts. older. Only the Nebby slang for bad fashion taste. Only the Nebby women are still wearing those. Stephanie had it right when she said that there seemed to be trends. I'm pretty I, Nebby. I don't know who decides these trends, but every season something new is in style. Mark, good eye. Pleather patches are going strong since 2015. Boom! Hasidic fashion is going through major changes right now, as evidenced by Instagram accounts like at Mimu Maxi, M-I-M-U Maxi, at Pashmina Collection, and others popping up. Check it out if you're curious about the fashion choices of the Housewives of Borough Park. Always love your show. Very funny and entertaining to listen to while I'm at work. Signed, Anonymous, so that my husband won't find out. Oh. Anonymous. We also, by the way, got another letter from a, a covert Haredi listener, a, 50, a 16-year-old boy. Did you guys see that letter in the yeah, mailbox? For the 16-year-old boys, like, I love your show, but I'm in the Haredi world, and, you know, I don't like, know. I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> right. Okay. Stephanie, What's a Taylor Swift? <laughs> Stephanie, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel, I found the discussion of Jewish celebration of Christmas very interesting. My former Protestant, now atheist agnostic family is celebrating Hanukkah for the second year. We have no Jewish roots. But we are fascinated by the rich and beautiful story and tradition behind many Jewish holidays like Hanukkah. Coming together as a family each night to light the candles and say the prayers in Hebrew, eating homemade latkes and sufgan yot and playing dreidel gives us a non-commercial sense of family and tradition that, frankly, we cannot find in Christmas. In fact, our tradition is to donate money to a different charity each night of Hanukkah instead of giving presents. As a lapsed Christian, I deeply envy the cohesiveness of the Jewish community. So I hope you might excuse our shameless cultural appropriation as it comes with high admiration and the best of intentions. Your podcast makes a point to welcome people regardless of their views on God. I'm not sure that this sort of inclusiveness or celebration of healthy skepticism could ever be embraced in the Christian community. Thank you for making a safe and wonderful space for people to discuss life and belief or lack thereof without apology. Annette Tapper, Texas. The El Maestro of Texas. We are big among Texas Christians. Only, only, only a Texas Christian could look at the Jewish community and be like, isn't it beautiful the way these people are cohesive and never argue? <laughs> but Annette, welcome. We welcome. love you. you and-, and and invite us over for Hanukkah next year because we will come. We will cook latkes. That's right. We will sing Sevivon Sov Sov Sov. We will take your charity. We will take your charity money. <laughs> Um, Everything you want. Dana in Chicago wrote in. She was binge listening old episodes. To, she wrote in to thank Liel for the hotter than hot Israeli accented hummus recipe. Yes. Uh, don't remind that Dana. Is, that that is true. Still we, haunts my dreams. That's right. Just kidding. Um, we had one listener who wrote in. She's trying to find out if the Australian actress Margot Robbie is possibly Jewish. I don't know Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie. Robbie. But our listeners are, are going to check on that. Finally. 
Hi, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel. I'm an American who's lived in Europe for about a decade, and no matter where I'm living, Jewish men have a way of finding me. A good, I just want to say, I love this letter. A good 70% of the men I've dated in the past two years are Jews who've picked me out both in the real world and online. Now, when I meet a guy who seems into me, if he doesn't make it immediately apparent that he's not Jewish, I just assume he is. I myself am not Jewish. I don't live in Israel. I'm not on J-Date. I don't have any female Jewish friends who might be acting as vectors. I don't work next to a synagogue. So, I'm afraid this might somehow be a racist Because that's, that's where the Jews go. <laughs> right, right. To the they synagogue. hang out next door that's to the right. synagogue. Like, right. So, I'm afraid that this might somehow be a racist question, but what is going on? Are there certain qualities that Jewish men find especially wifeable, the way that Spanish men tend to obsess over blondies with blue eyes and withholding demeanors? I didn't know Spanish men were into withholding demeanors. Did not I don't know. think Spanish men know that either. <laughs> I guess I'm asking whether there's a universal-ish code, spoken or un, for what Jewish men like in a lady. Finally, I'd like to emphasize this is not a complaint. I'm happy with my Jewish paramours and find we have a lot to talk and laugh about. I'm just wondering what it might be that makes this Shiksa catnip to Knights Jewish boys. Thanks and wishing you all a decent 2017, Julia. Well, Julia. It's that, that was a that was a, right. your attempt at a right. pun, right? Right. Uh, that was my attempt. Um, is that a pseudonym? The answer is that you're easy. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's what do we got for her? I like that it's Berlin. Like for some reason, because that's where Dan Savage had his whole right. thing. Where she did mention that she lives boyfriend in Berlin. Boyfriend yeah. thought he was Jewish. His German boyfriend. So maybe it's something that's happening it's in like Germany. Still unorthodox. Yeah. The fact that I am six foot two, blonde with blue eyes, and I, my name is. But she's American. Julia so. Opperstomenfeldgehagen. <laughs> <laughs> Does this have anything to do with it? If she were in America, I'd say the men are attracted to um, your interest in psychology. The fact that you're willing to like look at someone across the room and break down their issues. But Europeans aren't into that at all. Yeah, I think and the so fact that you're in Europe, it, like there's, there's scrambles a little everything more of for me. Diversity. I don't know, but maybe I don't know. I don't know what it is, but I want. I want to meet you. Yeah, we need. Could you send it? Hey, Colin, could you send us a picture? We'll we're this gonna is break a it down. This call it. Send us your phone number and your picture. We'll do this on a future episode. Uh, that's for all of you out there. Uh, send us mail, picture, and phone number optional. But write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. It is a source of unending delight and pleasure for us throughout the week. We don't have any other friends. Our Gentile of the Week this week is a, he's a, a super Gentile. There's some Gentiles who are elevated to the realm of super, because you have two Gentile religions, actually. It's Robert Wright. Uh, Shira, our producer, put actually in your bio, born January 15th, 1957. That's actually not true, but... Is she close? Is she's Wik- close. I probably put that on Facebook is to, mis- to mislead the people who would like to spy <laughs> on me and steal my gifts. data, but, uh, you know. That's hilarious. Uh, he hosts um, <laughs> The Right Show, which is on bloggingheads.tv and uh, The Meaning of Life TV. Right. That's right. Um, his Twitter handle is Robert Writer, and there's where you can get his musings. He's a journalist and a scholar. Here, I think of you as a science writer, but that kind of diminishes you, I think, because you're 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 a yeah, meaning I of life on writer. I Gentile part myself. I just always think of myself as Gentile of the week. Right. So <laughs> Robert Wright was raised Southern. So in my mind, Southern Baptist. Were you in the South? Because Southern uh, Baptists are everywhere. Yes and no. My parents are both from West Texas, but my father joined the army, so I lived a lot in Texas, okay. but around. And and you've. You have a book coming out uh, next summer called Why Buddhism is True. In case you were wondering. In case yes. you were wondering, which seems like a distinctly un-Buddhist thing. To say. I mean, we we exactly. liberal types love Buddhists, love the idea of Buddhism because they're like, oh, dude, it's like Unitarianism. It's all true. And you're actually going to tell us that only Buddhism's true? 
No, well, it doesn't. Ex- there are things that does not exclude being true. It's possible that Buddhism is true, and yet other things in the world are true. Like the sun rises in the morning, and yet Buddhism is true. Yes. So there are other. It doesn't it's exclude other truth. philosophical and religious right. truths. I got you. I got you. So I mean, for me, it's been interesting because. I remember before I ever met you reading, you you write on books, you write on things like Infinity and The Moral Animal and The Evolution of God is one of your books. And The Moral Animal was certainly the one that that I think I remember reading first. And I think of you as kind of a rationalist writer. And yet, you know, like David Brooks, you know, it's like one day you're going to end up Deepak Chopra. I mean, it's you've, got, you've gotten into yourself and, and spirituality and, you know, mindfulness and, you know. You know, my mother's maiden name is Brooks, so I could actually be Jewish without knowing it, first of all. And in which case, I am not the Gentile of the week. But let me emphasize, as well, far as Buddhism goes. Yeah. There is a rational core to the philosophy, and I'm not I'm not like I'm not like supporting like reincarnation and stuff. I try to make that clear in the book. But there's a whole philosophy associated with the practice of meditation that makes claims about the nature of reality, the nature of psychology. That's what I'm focusing on. So, what do you? How do you get into this? What sucked you in? Uh, you know, jubus. Uh, you know, what else? <laughs> is, is there yeah, any that's, other that's kind? What else? I mean, I went to the Insight Meditation Society. Uh, Which one is that? Which Jew is in, that? In, is that Jack that's Kornfield? That's three of them, Jack. Okay. Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein. Yep. Um, in, in Barry, Massachusetts. It's a it's an important place. I mean, it really was a major entry point for the whole Vipassana meditation tradition, which is huge now. That's kind of what mindfulness is. Right. So this was for an article. I'm guessing you went as a journalist. You were, someone was paying no, you to actually, go. No, actually, I went as a tortured soul. But I, but you know you try to get journalism out of everything, so you right. wind up writing. A book were you about well? It. Tell us about that. Were you? Why were you tortured? Were you in a lot of pain? Oh no, I wasn't. That's an exaggeration. But I think when you're brought up religiously and you lose your faith per se, you're, you're inclined to be looking for things, I guess. And so and so you go there, and and what what happens? What do you? Find? Well, I had never been able to meditate, um, and you know because I have the attention span of like you know Donald Trump. And uh, somebody suggested I try an actual one-week meditation retreat. You go a week, you don't talk. You meditate like sitting meditation for five and a half hours a day, walking meditation five and a half hours a day. Not much to do, but meditate. And, you know, finally it clicked. I mean, dramatically, amazingly. But what, what was the moment like? Well, there were a couple of moments. I mean, there was an... Uh, I actually described these in the book. One moment was, uh, you know, I had had too much coffee and I had this like over-caffeination feeling. I was like grinding my teeth, you know, you know, and it's like you want to get away from it. And I'd been meditating for a few days, nothing been working. All of a sudden, I was just like observing the feeling rather than, I mean, I was still feeling it, but it was no longer an unpleasant feeling. I had a kind of objective perspective on the feeling. It turns out you can do that with anxiety in principle. I mean, it's not easy. You know, and you have to stick with the practice and so on. But that's a certain amount of the idea of mindfulness meditation is to get what you might call a more objective perspective on feelings that you're not wild about being enslaved by. And so have you continued? Have you? Yeah, I have have a daily practice. Yeah. And I've been to, you know, five, six retreats since then. This was a long. This was 2003. I've been I've done a total of a couple of months of silent meditation retreats. Put together, not not put together. (laughs) You know, there are people who. Who do several months? Well, I was going to say when Mark I, Oppenheimer would not be able to do that. Well, we when I wrote my piece about Edo Shimano, the 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 Buddhist Roshi who had, like so many Zen Roshis, hmm. a less than savory history uh, with touching some of his. I mentioned him in my book, by the way, having read your book. I mean, yeah, the, and one of the things that I discovered when I talked to women who had been pulled into his orbit was that some of them got really addicted. They they would they'd go to a retreat and. It, 
you know, they do a day and then they do a weekend, then they do a week, then they do a addicted month. Addicted to not speaking? Addicted to... Like the silent? Are you talking about a silent Not retreat? to not seek, not to, I mean, you can speak at some of them, but to um, life at the Zendo, at the retreat center of meditation. And when they'd return to real world and there'd be children and dishes and dogs to walk and, you know, garage, uh, you know, garbage trucks outside, they couldn't handle it. Like that, the world they wanted was a world of meditation and some of them would leave their families and some, I mean, because that was so much more pleasant than real world yeah there's a there's a more moderate version of that which is you get back from a retreat you're in the zone it's very easy to meditate your practice is going great then six nine months down the road it's harder and harder and you say i need another retreat so you go on a one-week retreat like every 18 months or something which is a reasonably non-pathological way to handle the addiction well i i do transcendental meditation and every six to nine months we go for a, a, a check-in for mm-hmm. these precise you do tm yes Wow. Oh, yeah, you weren't there when we did our first New Haven show. I heard all about it on the way home. But you I live in no New Haven. Idea. Two, two 20-minute so, sessions a day. Wow. So I have a statement that leads into a question. So my – speaking of silent meditation, I mean I have a comment. Retreats, and then, do you have a comment that a question? I have a question that's really a comment. <laughs> um, I'm, at, I'm at the 90 Seconds Street Y. Right. Um, so my dad proposed a, a silent – like a speaking fast on Yom Kippur. And he's sort of venturing into Jubu territory. So what is it? with Jews and Buddhism? Like, how did that, what, how do you explain it as someone who has studied religion and who understands this more than your average, average guy? Average why why have Jews been so prominent in... What is the attraction, do you think? Well, I, I, you know, it's a, um, it's a spirituality that doesn't require faith, at least if you adopt the kind of more secular version of it. Um, so, so it's really open to people of, of any faith in principle. I mean, if you don't buy the reincarnation part and stuff like that. I mean, if you look at, if you look at like Maimonides, you know, the great, probably greatest theological contribution in the last God knows how many years, it's negative theology, right? It's like, can we say God exists? No, but we can say that he doesn't exist. Uh, which, you know, influenced. But that's not where Jack Kornfield and some of those other popularizers were coming from, I don't think. Right, it's, but it but wasn't the from the reading of Maimonides. I, I, think, I think that the theological underpinnings are there. But let me ask you a question. When you see the the mushrooming of mindfulness, you know, how, how you know, asshole corporate uh, entities come and be like, oh, we have a mindfulness practice here at, you know, Goldman Sachs that we do X, Y, Z. You know, we have apps. Hey, you're it, talking it, about potential really, buyers of my book. Careful, buddy. You love those people. <laughs> they are great. They are. Most. Bob wants nothing more than, than to keynote a 10,000-person corporate <laughs> convention where everyone gets a copy of his I'm work. I'm totally on board yeah. with their approach to mindfulness. <laughs> <laughs> you're very, very mindful yeah, you're mindful. of their <laughs> buying power. That's totally. True. No, but I, I take your point, and on the one hand, uh, you know, a lot like a lot of people, I don't like to see it viewed as strictly self-help in the most selfish sense. At the same time, the idea behind the practice is that it it starts out as therapy, but can draw you into more spiritual territory and toward a more kind of selfless approach to life. That that can happen fairly naturally. So I don't, I certainly don't discourage people from trying it just to make their lives better. So it's the beginning of the new year. Do you have any like tips? Like, I mean, not to ask you for mindfulness tips, but are there any things like small things that you've implemented in your life that you think could just like really help other people? Well, I mean, again, for me, the incremental approach didn't work. Just trying to meditate on my own and like trying to be mindful and stop and smell the roses. I had to do total immersion. I I had to go do a one week retreat. To some people, it comes more naturally. If it does... Get a CD, you know, one of these things that, that, that leads you through the meditation 
and um, and try it. But I do think daily practice is important. I mean, reminding yourself to stop and smell the roses is fine, but it's not like in Buddhist scripture. That's not, you know, that's actually not what it was. <laughs> there's really, there's very little about living in the moment in the ancient Buddhist texts. It, it, it's more about a, a more thoroughgoing discipline that then can be conducive to that kind of thing. But uh, a tip for meditators who are trying to sustain the practice, just make sure that one time each day, at a minimum, you make contact with a cushion. It can be three seconds, but you know, if you say, I don't have time to meditate, just sit down, just do it, literally just sit down and get up, but at least you don't lose sight of the aspiration. It's like putting on the running shoes is the hardest part. Yeah. Right, Leo? No. No? No. It's the running Running 26.2 miles, that's the hardest (laughs) All right, so... You have before you a panel of world-renowned Jewish experts, and we always all allow our Gentiles of the Week the opportunity to ask mm-hmm. us a question that they might not understand about our mysterious people. Do you have such a question for us? I do have a question. All right. What is it, Bob? The question is, if you're born Jewish, can you choose not to be a Jew? And the reason I ask is because if you're born Christian, I found out it's remarkably easy to leave the tribe. If you say, I'm not sure Jesus is the son of God, I'm not even sure God exists. A number of Christians are very happy to show you the door and not only allow you to not call yourself a Christian, but encourage you to not call yourself a Christian. And I'm guessing it's not quite so simple if you're Jewish. Well, I think in terms of language, like the idea of a lapsed Christian is something we all sort of understand, but I've never heard someone be a lapsed Jew. Like I've just, I mean, sort of colloquially, I think because you don't have that, oh, I decided like I didn't, I don't believe in these certain tenets and then therefore I'm not, I'm no longer a Christian. I don't think it works the same way in Judaism. See, this, this, my liberal friend is, is where we, is where we part ways. But you're not liberal. This may come as a surprise, but if you do not uh, believe uh, at all in your heart, uh, forget practice, right, which is debatable and has always been. But in your heart, if you don't believe the the fundamental tenets of this religion, and to me that very much includes the belief in God, I have I have trouble with calling well, yourself but a Jew. Theologically, I think you're out. theologically speaking, according to Jews and Judaism, you're never not a Jew if you're born a Jew. Yeah, like halachically. Theologically speaking, you can be excluded from community. You can be placed in harem. Right. They can ostracize you. But if your mother's vagina was Jewish, that's, that's right. it. No, that's right. Theologically speaking, you know, it's the Hotel California. You can check out, but you can never leave. And uh, so, for example, you know, you will, again, unless you're being ostracized, but even then, you're still a Jew. They can, you know, if you sort of make amends, if you grant your wife that divorce or you pay restitution to the people you cheated or whatever that the community was ostracizing you for, you're back in. You can be ostracized, but you're never not available to be counted in the minion. You're never not available to be counted in the the community that's needed to say prayers after unless to, to you convert to dinner. No, even if you convert, again, there, you're still you're still halakhically Jewish. Hmm. We will get mail on this, but I've I, because over the years I've asked I've been asked this question and I've asked it and the the very strict rabbis I talk to will always no no you're still a Jew you can be in bad favor I mean if you molest someone's kids they won't let you in shul but they but you're a Jew who molested someone's kids see I think the loophole here culturally at least is Jews for Jesus where most Jews would be like not a Jew well so that's interesting right and what they mean by that is don't count them as they don't get to count they they don't get. You don't get an aliyah in shul, for example. You don't get to go up and read from the Torah. But they are calling themselves Jews, which is interesting. And they are Jews, which is why when we had a Messianic Jew on the show, she was the Jew of the week, not the Gentile. I was was out that week. Um, all right. So if people want more Robert Wright, they should go to bloggingheads.tv where they can also then hop to your meaning of life. You, you're the editor in chief of Bloggingheads TV. I am. Right? And I've, it's, it's, it's neat. It's, you see two people side by side debating stuff. And actually, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is the Glenn Lowry show on Bloggingheads TV, which is 
just phenomenal, just week after week. He's got a big following, phenomenal. and it's it's all though, everything is available as an audio podcast, and everything's available as an and audio also podcast. Pre-order the book. It's so nice to pre-order. Can books. we pre-order yet? From your lips to God's ears. Is it up? Yeah, on, I think it is up. On, it so. is up on Amazon. So yes. you also want to read why Buddhism what? is true by Robert Wright. Buy uh, it today. It will come as a nice surprise from the universe in August. That's right. And you would thank your good karma. Follow him on Twitter at Robert Writer. And when you go to Wikipedia and see that he was born on one fifteen fifty seven. That's a lie. Don't send him a present. Don't send him a present that day. No, uh, send the present. It's <laughs> not for my birthday. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for being our Gentile of the Week. Thank you. Uh, do we have any Mazel Tovs this week, Liel? My Mazel Tov is to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who uh, currently is undergoing his, I believe, 20th uh, criminal investigation in 12 years. <laughs> a uh, new record. It's not even either, a record in Israel. And, and, and none of them found, uh, you know, none of them came to anything, which means that either he's really good at being investigated by the police or the police is really bad uh, at coming up with, you know, like evidence. <laughs> Stephanie? Um, well, as the, you know, the token young liberal here, a um, pop culture fiend, um, I'm going to throw a mazel tov to Meryl Streep, who used her, I see, I see Liel, <laughs> his eyes are, 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 are bugging. Are, yeah. I like um, who used her award at the Golden Globes to, you know, sort of speak truth to something <laughs> and very quickly got under Donald Trump's skin. <laughs> <laughs> made made the ultimate achievement of getting under <laughs> Donald Trump's skin. The rare feat of getting under Donald Trump's skin. My Mazatov is also Golden Globe based. I don't watch the Golden Globes on principle because they're not a real award show. But um, my Mazatov is to Hugh Grant just for staying in the public eye. Just because he, the guy's made one good movie in his entire life. And here he is, you know, 30 years running. He's still a celebutante. And uh, Mazatov. The Tov, movie will be just a curiosity. Oh, I mean, Four Weddings and a Funeral was a really because Love Actually. Is... Not that actually was a pretty great movie too. It was a pretty great. You movie. loved Love Actually. Did you oh, love, I love Actually? Love Actually. Okay, so they made two good movies. <laughs> Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision this week was in fact by Meryl Streep. Kosher slaughtering is by Jeff Sessions. On Twitter, we're at Tablet Mag, but I am at Markop One. Liel is at Liel. Stephanie is at Stuffism, and Stephanie is on in- Insta Chat. It's called Instagram. Instagram, where she is S. Butnick. I have to say I've gotten like 60 new followers since last week, uh, since we announced my Instagram, and I feel like I really need to step up my game. Listen, if you rate us on iTunes and send us an email saying that you rated us, we will send you a special gift in the mail. Our music is by Golem, but it's sometimes by the Jubador, Jim Nabel. We record in Argo Studios, or as it's known in Hebrew, Argo Studiot. We're proud to be part of Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.